right, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. RedEyes.tv and RedEyesMembers.com. That's our main website. Check us out on all the other channels we're at as well. You can find all the links down below. Today, we have another interview lined up for you guys. We have Carl Hammers on the show, and we're actually going to talk about his book today. He was kind enough to send me a copy. Covert COVID Culprits, an Inquest Chronicle. Uh, welcome, Carl. How are you doing today? Thank you, Henrik. Doing excellent. Um, so good to be with you here. And uh, Red Ice has been doing such great work for so long, and uh, I'm really honored to be here now. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's kind of you. So let's just begin at the beginning. It's easiest that way, I guess. How, uh, how did you end up writing a book like this? Obviously, COVID in and of itself was a huge issue, but of course, there's a lot of tie-ins here we're going to talk about who's behind it. We're going to look at this from your point of view in terms of uh, some of the names. You know, some might be more well-known, some might be less well-known. We've seen some of them kind of in the in the mainstream around the COVID pandemic. But uh, anyway, first is first. Uh, how did you how did you wake up to some of these topics? And why did you want to write about the COVID pandemic? I call the uh, COVID pandemic the two years, 2020 and 2021, among the most epic in human history. The transformation they've brought to our world and propelling us towards 2030 and the Great, great Reset. So to answer your question, um, I suppose in 2015, I was living in Oregon, and uh, a member of the Oregon legislature named Elizabeth Steiner Hayward proposed a new law in Oregon to require school children to be fully vaccinated against vaccine-preventable diseases or else unable to attend school, daycare. And that ignited the countervax movement in Oregon, and I joined it. I was part of it. And I began studying vaccines. We um, had uh, quite a number of groups on Facebook that were openly anti-vax. Uh, and we have very vigorous you know, uh, activity on Facebook, Oregonians for Medical Freedom, um, Our Kids, Our Choice, Vaccine Truth Warriors. And I learned a great deal about vaccines, pandemics, the, the medical industry, pharmaceutical companies. And around this time, I was making a series of um, three local television programs. With Vaccines were one of the issues, GMOs, local issues around uh, wildfires. And, and uh, there was a technician on my crew uh, who said to me one day we were preparing for the uh, TV show, and he said, I think the Monsantos are Jews. <laughs> Based. <laughs> well, I, I was kind of stunned in a kind of blank way. I, I had no context to evaluate that. If it was true, uh, so what? But uh, this person, I think of him now as my mentor, and he became a friend and colleague. He... Uh, Soon after that, he got a book into my hands called The Controversy of Zion by Douglas Reed. It's back here in this library. And I read it. I read that around 2016. And uh, it was basically a concise history of the Jewish people from the Old Testament times until 1956. And that was the beginning of my awakening to the Jewish, what I'm now calling the Jewish issue. That went on. He, this man eventually asked if he could store his entire library at my house in Oregon because uh, it was in storage for him. There it is. In a strange development, um, he died in February of this year. And in his will and testament, he left his library to me. And that's mostly what you see behind me. It's much larger than you can see. It's uh, 
over 200 volumes. After I began reading some of these books uh, stored at my house, I, uh, you know, extended my understanding of these issues. I consider that somewhat my awakening. And that was, I was introduced to that by a single person. Uh, he introduced me to websites and uh, programs such as Red Ice. This is around 2016. And by 2019, I was studying on the Occidental Observer. And I've written, uh, now I have 29 essays posted to the Occidental Observer. Uh, you can find them in the uh, author blog under Carl Hamers. Many of them, of course, on the Jewish issue. And at that time, I read two essays by um, Kevin McDonald, one of them, Jews and Jewish organizations lead the gun control campaign. And another by Andrew Joyce, another excellent writer at Occidental yeah, Observer. Andrew's great. Yeah, I think he must be Irish. Um, <laughs> I believe so. His, I had one on the show essay, once. It was a while ago, though. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I want to. I want to listen to that. He was uh, the author of the essay, "Jews and Gun Control: A Reprise," and it struck me at that time, like, here, here are these Jews again, like behind and within another you know, awful development in our nation, the gun control legislation and evisceration of the Second Amendment. And it really struck me at that time, like, why? Why, why are Jews, like, everywhere, every time we look, they're, they're behind these really awful developments for our nation, our people, our society. And that's when I decided, well, what, what else are they involved in? What else could they possibly be? You know, such a small population. And uh, soon after, I found an essay on those who lead the vax wars are Jews. Well, uh, oh, here they are again. And, uh, and I've learned a lot about vaccines, but I didn't learn, uh, you know, the Jewish role or the Jewish uh, influence on the promotion of vaccines. And there it was. And so when uh, the COVID story began breaking in early 2020, my impulse was to say, well, no doubt there's, this is such a heinous, awful development for our world. There must be some Jewish involvement in this. So I went looking. And people told me, Henrik, um, well, you know, you, you, you find what you look for. As if right, to yeah. kind of dismiss that. It's, right. like, it, it's not really valid that you found Jews because you were looking for them. Right. Well, I tell them, uh, well, you don't find what you don't look for. And you don't find it when it's not there. Yeah. So and I also felt um, there was so much obscuring of the Jewish role in COVID. I didn't find it really presented anywhere else uh, very strongly in any kind of you know accessible format. So I thought I at least have to chronicle this in, over the next two years. It, it was essential to get it on the historical record. And that was my motivation for writing the book. It, it, it uh, was written in the form of uh, some of the chapters are submissions to the Occidental Observer. And then there are a number of chapters that I wrote, uh, you know, uh, uh, original for the book. All right, so obviously a lot to lot to dive into here, and I do I do want to play devil's advocate a little bit. I know, I know in the beginning of the book, for example, you go through this issue of like, well, you know, not all Jews, you know, kind of thing. You know, we, let's just clear that off the this, <laughs> the plate first here, you know, kind of thing. Because I mean, it, it's true. You you look at the names, you know, in, in terms of 
the pandemic, and of course, and there's there's many non-Jews involved there. You know, obviously NIAID head Fauci, right? Uh, Robert Redfield, who at the time under Trump was was head of the CDC. Later on, of course, Rochelle Walensky came aboard, who is Jewish. Uh, the FDA had Stephen Hahn, I think. I think, was he Jewish, the, the FDA head? At the, I forget if he is. I don't think he was. Um, well, a name like Hahn is likely to be. Might, maybe he is. I, I actually didn't look it up. But then you have Pfizer. You know, he, he's uh, very proudly Jewish. We have a clip later. We might play that. Albert Borla. Uh, you had the White House COVID czar under Biden, Jeff Zients. He's Jewish. Now it's uh, Aisha Jha, which I think is Indian or Sri Lankan or something like that. But anyway, so, so let's just talk a little bit about that. Um, it, I, I'll say this, and, and I want to get your take on this. But if this would have been, if we would have had an, an equal amount of, let's say, Muslims. Now, that's not a race. And you can get into the issue of like, well, you know, are Jews a religion? Is it a race? That question. That's an interesting one that, that should be, you know, uh, debated as well. But regardless, I, I bet you that if you had Muslims in, in as many positions as we have Jews, the conservatives, the GOP in America would, would have reacted to this. This would be like, what, what's going on here? Why is this, you know, why is there so many of them here type thing, right? So it doesn't mean that all of them are involved, but there is an over-representation here. And of course, we have to ask that question, why? And as usual, of course, we've been shut down. People are censored, they're banned for asking these simple questions like, well, what is it? There's a, is there something to it? What if this was an, a different ethnic group? Would it be um, uh, would it be rational and reasonable to question that? Let's say it was Chinese people that were so overrepresented. you know what I mean? So w what do you say to, to those kinds of uh, issues when they come up? Well, first I'll say that Jews are undoubtedly a race. They're even a tribe. That's beyond dispute. Um, well, we can say, we can look at 9-11 and how many, uh, it was considered an inside job, but that was attributed to non-Jews such as uh, Bush and Cheney and uh, Rumsfeld. But when we look beyond that uh, cover story, you know, that shallow front, we find Jews all over 9-11. In fact, they're so prevalent that 9-11 couldn't have happened without, you know, U.S.-based Zionist Jews and Israeli Jews. And I, we can say the same about COVID. The, uh, the key positions in the entire operation from, you know, 2020 was the year of panic-demic. This is where we build up the fear. This is where you establish the, the terror of a spreading virus. And 2021, almost to the day, each of them, it was carefully scripted to the year. 2021 was the vaccine rollout. And it was the year of the COVID vax. And in all the key positions to complete these psychological operations and medical operations and financial operations. Jews occupy those positions and they had to in order to conduct the COVID phenomenon. So um, the book uh, goes through some of these Jews in these key positions. And one of the most obvious is Rochelle Walensky, but yeah. there are many others. But, you know, as you say, there are others that are in key positions who are not Jews, such as Fauci and Bill Gates. So there we, uh, we have to chronicle their associations with Jews or 
organizations that are uh, institutions that are led by and, and ruled by Jews. And this has to include the media. I have an essay at the Occidental Observer, also on my Substack page. Um, the title is about uh, Jewish control and management of media, an update, updating from the 1994, uh, I think it was a brochure by William Pierce and the National Alliance, Who Owns America? So you can't have the COVID phenomenon without total dominance of the media, the mass media. And that itself is almost totally dominated by Jews. I don't know if that, I feel like that uh, answers your question. Yeah. There's so much more to say. No, of course. No, there's a lot to say there. But uh, uh, what what would you say, again, uh, playing devil's advocate here, someone tunes in and they're newcomers or whatever, and they're like, well, well that's ridiculous. There's so many other non-Jews you know, non involved, and how do they all you know keep it together? And why, why, why do you make it a distinct issue tied to, to them? You know what I mean? Is there something you would say to that for someone who's new or like questioning this or don't kind of make those connections or dots. I think it would be good for you to, to, to lay that out for them and give them a chance to kind of understand why you why you, why you you go in that direction, basically, if you can. I can. I have answered that already with people. It's, it's a very common standard question. And the answer is because no one else is. It's really that simple. Why, why would I fixate on, you know, Jews doing awful things and leading organizations that are ruining our civilization and bankrupting us and impoverishing the world. And well, because no one else is, of course, that's a simplistic statement. There certainly are others and I'm in contact with them and I read their books. And, but this, this inquiry is marginalized. It's suppressed. That itself shows to me, why we must explore it because it's beyond significant it's urgent otherwise they wouldn't try to suppress it and that's that's the reason i call my substack page uh, taboo truth the truth is in the taboos anything that is taboo to speak about is the exact area we must investigate and understand and and gain knowledge over and there's nothing more taboo than the jewish issue Yes, people said, uh, if you want to find out who rules over you, uh, find out who, you, who you're not allowed to criticize, right? And, and, and supposedly you have that kind of contradiction. Uh, and, and in fact, I think it was a recent clip here with Greenblatt. Let's see if I can pull it in. I didn't immediately pull it in, but I saw it uh, last night. And it was Greenblatt who I think went on an Israeli t uh, TV station, I-24 I or whatever it's called. And they were talking about the... Um, the G, uh, the, no, the J, the J7, I think it was, that the, they named it. It was, a, it was a number of Jewish groups in different countries, mostly in Western countries, I believe, um, that were, are going together to try to, you know, kind of combat anti-Semitism. Again, a lot of this have to do with censorship, kind of controlling narratives on the Internet and things like that. And it's always an interesting juxtaposition to make that th they... they, they can and are able to use disproportionate power and influence to direct discourse to silence perspectives that they don't want to get out. But the point of that is to kind of dismiss the idea that they don't have disproportionate power and influence. And of course, that's, <laughs> that's a contradiction. Like, okay, you don't, you're using now the power and the influence over media and discourse mm -hmm. and even over governments in some cases of, of passing laws, etc. 
to do something which you doesn't say exist, right? So that kind of that explains itself in a sense, right? Yes, indeed, that's indicative. I wouldn't say, um, you know, anti-Semitism doesn't really exist. It, it certainly, maybe that's not what you meant, but uh, it, it is certainly a legitimate thing, and it's on the rise, and for very good reason. I call it counter-Semitism, because that indicates the dominance of Jewish power. It's something we have to counter. If it's merely anti-Semitism, that suggests a kind of equality of power, or even a dominance of non-Jewish power, which is, which is utterly false. Uh, Jewish power is ascendant in the nation, in the world, and uh, there is a legitimate counter-Semitism. Yeah, so let me play that clip. I, I found it here. This is Greenblatt going on Israeli television. Check this out, guys. A new initiative in the global fight against anti-Semitism. The leaders of seven Jewish communities in the diaspora are forming a new organization called J7. Major organizations in the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, Argentina, and Australia have announced the formation of this new task force against anti-Semitism, a collaboration focusing on common challenges in response to the increasing rates of anti-Semitism around the world. So for more, it's a pleasure to welcome Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League, joining us from New York. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time on this day. So it's sad to think that in 2023, there is even a need for a global task force like this, J7. Seven countries, large Jewish communities in what you call liberal democracies. Talk us through the steps to set this task force up in the first place. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. It is such a pleasure to be an I-24. I so admire the work that the network does and bringing the Israeli perspective to news. Right, Jonathan, thing. butter her up first. <laughs> um, look, in this moment today, uh, J7 seems so important, and it came out of the, con the 125th anniversary of the World Zionist Conference in Basel. I was attending, oh, oh, oh. representing mm -hmm. the American Jewish community with some others, and I was wor working alongside my colleagues from the Kreef, the Jewish representative organization in France. And we were talking about the similar challenges we face, the rise of the right wing, anti-Semitism, the surge of radical sort of anti-Zionism from the left, the challenge from religious extremists, and realizing we had much in common and about the merits of maybe if we coordinated our efforts, shared best practices, we could develop a common defense against this rise of anti-Semitism. And prior to this job at the ADL, I worked in the Obama White House, and I staffed G7 meetings. And so we started to see quickly that building on the model of the G7, now those are the largest you know, economies in the world. This would be the largest Jewish communities in diaspora. Right. But an annual summit, work streams, and a constant focus on how can we work together to do better for our people. All right, there it is. Uh, what do you say to that? I mean, it, it, look, if there was, I'm sure you have a lot of comment here. What if there was a group like this that, that was to, to counter all the anti-white sentiments that mm -hmm. we have out there, right? A really powerful group. You have uh, the, the European diaspora, right? Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, America, obviously, and many European countries going together uh, with very powerful institutions to, to ensure that there can be no criticism of people of European descent. What do you think the reactions to that would be? Yeah. 
<laughs> That's an interesting question. It's, it is changing, but overwhelmingly that would be denounced as white supremacy and white supremacy terrorism. And so he closes by asking, you know, what can we do to help our people? Well, we could ask the same question. And uh, primarily those who are harming our people are Jews. So we'd have to add to that, you know, what can we do to help our people against Jews? How can we improve our counter-Semitism? We need a, I don't know, a G7, meaning the Goy 7. <laughs> you know, we need, a, we need um, an Aryan 7. Because the Jews have actually not seven, but thousands of organizations better funded than many nations, you know, working on their agenda. And their agenda is anti-white, really to the point of genocide, the ex extermination of the white race at the hands of Jews looks to be a real phenomenon today. The, uh, the end of that tunnel is in sight. That's what I would say. Yeah, what what do you think about their the effort then to restrict and, and control uh, discussion around this and information? Right, usually they come up with the straw man that well, if you talk about these things, it will lead to uh, you know another Holocaust or some of the arguments that that bubble up. They would immediately lead to violence as opposed to like, well, let's let's debate the issues in terms of what, what whether it's ethnic interest, uh, whose ethnic interest is supposed to override other people, other groups' ethnic interests, and things like that. Uh, and and just try to understand kind of the power structures and the power dynamic because again I go back to that when it comes to demonizing people of European descent and understanding how much white people have influence over corporations and stuff this is an open dialogue and discourse in the majority I think every single mainstream publication uh, today in fact that's been ramping up just as you say the the, the rhetoric is is uh, increasingly hostile and I think partially that's leading to violence. Uh, but here we are trying to raise the issue of like, well, what's what's with this disproportionate overrepresentation? They they've talked about diversity and how like you know uh, corporate boards or companies now they have to be diverse. You can't have too many white people and stuff. There's like famous articles of of a photo of like a corporate board that that comes out and there's like a Twitter outrage because there's too many white faces or something like that. You know what I mean? But that doesn't happen, of course, in terms of Jews, who's only if you talk about from point of view of America, two percent of the population. And yet, so overrepresented in many of the powerful political and media positions and things like that. Yes. Well, it doesn't that obviously reveal the extent of Jewish power that they're they're capable of of running that kind of program. They they know, as well as some of us do, that the collapse of civilization, the destruction of any civilization in the past, has been primarily due to race mixing. They know this, so they are inflicting it as a weapon as in, in a deliberate campaign to destroy white Western civilization. That their goal is to replace it with the Great Reset that ties into the World Economic Forum. And uh, we can talk about the, the Jews that are on the board of trustees. Um, I know this from the book um, the myth of the 20th century by uh, Al Alfred Rosenberg, National Socialist Estonian, and uh, Ernest Sevier Cox's book in the 1930s, uh, White America. They chronicle the destruction of ancient civilizations through race mixing. 
I think the Jews of today study these things and then they they inflict programs that uh, target the weakness of, of our civilization. Another one is, uh, you know, sexual confusion, uh, homosexuality, transsexualism. You know, and, and in a sense, you can see that they've reverse engineered isn't the word, but they've whatever the National Socialist Germans did to uplift and support the uh, validity of their homogeneous Aryan society and nation. The Jews do the opposite today. I think they've, they've literally looked at that and saw how successful it was in Germany and said, well, we have to do the exact opposite to destroy it. I don't know what else to say, but um, I think the reason I wrote the book is to, you know, here we have Jews uh, are always depicting themselves as the victims of history. Well, the book will show how the Jews were the villains of one of the most destructive uh, influences on the entire world. And, and that includes mass death, impoverishment, uh, uh, declining birth rates, you know, immense uh, indebtedness, Pro you know, certainly worse than the Great Depression. And the villains of that program were Jews. So it's critical to like wrestle them out of the victim role and place them where they probably belong in the villain role. Yeah, it, it, it's that connects to something I do want to bring up later, actually, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the bioweapons thing, because it's so kind of the same thing there, right? That we're, we're now all of a sudden whites and black people, by the way, because he mentioned that too, are essentially. I mean, he didn't say it was intentionally engineered, and so therefore, you know, this is a bioweapon. He didn't say that, but the assumption was that, and a lot of people reacted to that. I have a clip on that we'll want to play later, but it speaks just to that point you're making. Whites or Europeans can, can never be victims. They're always the oppressor, you know, kind of thing. And Jews are always victims, as you said. That, that narrative is uh, intensely important to always kind of keep, because, of course, there's, there's things you can uh, get away with. I mean, no one should be... Uh, above criticism. No one should be above criticism. Uh, but in this regard, essentially, I don't know, are, are there any other groups that are to that degree above criticism? I don't think so. There has been, you know, when there was the height of BLM, you kind of have, sure, in the media, there was kind of a narrative you can never question somebody and their their uh, uh, intent if they're, if they're black or something like that, right? But in this case, I think uh, they're always, always uh, the, the victim. What, what would you say about that? The only other groups that are above criticism are those that the Jews uh, decide are above criticism and only in a limited fashion. Once one of these uh, protected groups goes off the plantations, such as Kanye West, then they get uh, denounced and they Rude. are certainly uh, the target of criticism and mostly from Jews. So uh, I thought it was very interesting. I wrote one of my more recent essays on my Substack is about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s reference to a bioweapon and the COVID bioweapon. And uh, there's over 150 essays on my Substack, but that's one of the more recent. And it struck me that um, the reason uh, Wasserman Schultz was grilling him and just tearing into Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was because his scenario depicted Jews as not victims. And it depicted whites as potential victims. That those two things are ultimate no-nos. 
that that is heresy. Not only that, but um, it depicted whites as co-victims alongside blacks. Right. Yeah. That is off the table. Um, the blacks are victim of whites only. They, they are not co-victims. Whites are the villains. Blacks are the victims. And Jews are victims. If Jews are uh, protected from the COVID bioweapon because of their genetics, that makes Jews potentially the villains of this bioweapon. And that is the ultimate taboo. Do you want to play a little bit of uh, Watson Marshall? Maybe we should do it now. Should we do it now? <laughs> Let's play a little bit so people can get a sample. We, you know, kind of keeping track of our time, but by all means, <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. It, it is fascinating. Let's play a little bit of this here while we're on it. Mr. Kennedy's invitation to be appear here due to his repeated and very recent statements that spread dangerous anti-Semitic and anti-Asian conspiracy theories and attempted to move into executive session because House rules prohibit public testimony that degrades or defames people. His reckless rhetoric helped fuel anti-Semitic incidents, which for the record are at the highest level in the United States since 1970. They have nearly tripled in the last six years. Since you gave Mr. Kennedy a megaphone today, I want to give him a chance to correct his statements and prepare some of the harm that he's helped uh, cause. A chance to correct it, Mr. yes. Mr. Kennedy, you're well-educated. <laughs> so yes or no, please. Are you aware yeah. that for centuries, Jews have been scapegoated and blamed for causing illnesses like Black Plague and more recently COVID? I am. Those are known as blood libel, and they are one of the worst and most disturbing parts of uh, human history. Good. I'm glad to know that, of course, that you that you acknowledge that. Good of boy. Course, Jump it's to this hoop. And well documented <laughs> that this pernicious form of anti-Semitism led to centuries of discrimination, even horrific pogroms and massacres, and it still fuels deadly violence today. Yet last week, you floated a baseless conspiracy theory that the coronavirus was bioengineered to target Caucasians and black people, but to spare Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese people. Mr. Kennedy, your bizarre, unproven claim echoes that same historic slander of labeling Jews and Chinese people as a race, and that Jews, and in this case Chinese people, somehow managed to avoid a deadly illness that targets other groups for death. You do see that, yes or no? You're misstating. No, 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 no. Uh, you I, are... quoted, I quoted what you said earlier, and it, it is directly what you said. So just ask me, uh, yes no, or no. I was, I was describing an NIH-funded study. No, 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 you didn't cite any. I was, as, I was describing an NIH-funded study by Cleveland Clinic We're scientists. my time. Reclaiming my time. You if did not you, reference reclaiming my time. Published in USC <laughs> Medical, which is, is one of... Time out. The time is mine. I, I I'm need to talk about the Holocaust. Yeah. Stop you asked me a question. Reclaiming I, let me, Allow me to answer time. my question. Mr. Chairman, I'd like about 10 the time, seconds the time, back. The time belongs. You are slandering me incorrectly. The, the time belongs to the You're saying is dishonest. Time belongs to the gentlelady from the front. Slander. Mr. Chairman, I'd like 15 seconds back. We will be happy to give you that. Thank you so much. You did not cite any study like you are citing here now during that conversation. You referenced no study but at that all. But was, it, was it was a, someone recorded it. It was off the cuff. It was at a, after a dinner, presumably, right? And he said, oh, here's the exact study. So he just generalized That's it, like what, what we know so far, or at least one of these uh, you know, studies kind of thing. But they can't see. They cannot have this. This is very important. This, yep, this, is, this <laughs> is Jewish fragility. Yeah. Um, Let's play a little bit more here, and then we'll You simply get back on track. labeled Jews and Chinese people as a race, and you also said that somehow they managed to avoid a deadly illness that targets other groups for death. 
You don't see that? You're trying to rewrite history here. A few months ago, Mr. Kennedy, you compared COVID public health policies to barbaric murderous tactics of Nazi Germany, saying that Jewish people in Nazi Germany had more freedom than Americans facing COVID health restrictions. In hindsight, Mr. Kennedy, do you reject this absurd and deeply hurtful and harmful comparison, or do you still stand by it? Congressman, what you are saying is a lie. That you, you said it. It's, oh, it's, I no, have, I did not. I never contained, okay. I never, ever Mr. Chairman, I'm happy to answer into the record when Mr. Kennedy said that. I reclaim my time. In Here's discussing COVID public health measures, you made light of the genocide against Jewish people by saying, and I quote, even Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps to Switzerland, you could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. Mr. Kennedy, do you think it was easy for Jewish people to escape systematic slaughter of Nazis yesterday? Oh, oh my God. All right. And then it just goes into that there. But yeah, incredible. Uh, where do you even begin, right? So, so tiresome. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, that's real uh, hypersensitivity. You know, that's um, the, the guilty flee where none pursue. You know, to, to, to call that anti-Semitism just because Kennedy indicated there was uh, an NIH study that showed there were genetic susceptibilities to COVID and, and genetic kind of protections. And it happened to fall out on Jews and Chinese. It's like, to, to get all fussy and defensive and hostile over that, it just shows, really it shows Jewish fragility. And uh, that's why I feel like these, uh, you know, chronicles, of uh, Jewish villain roles in history, including in COVID, it's so powerful. They're, they're, they're so sensitive to even the mildest criticism that when we hit them with full-on accusations, you know, they, they, it has to be overwhelming. It's certainly important to educate the, the non-Jews, the, the Aryans, the, the Europeans, the white race on these, uh, these matters. All right. So, uh, what what do you think we? Where would you like to go next here? I want to make sure we that you feel that we, you know, present this uh, as best as possible to get people, uh, you know, to click and they see this from your perspective as well. Do you want to go through some of the names? Yes. Of people. Yeah. Please go ahead. Chapter five: Covert COVID Jews. I consider this the heart of the book. Start with Charles Lieber, January twentieth. He was. Uh, arrested by the FBI for selling nanotech secrets to the Chinese, basically, and not, um, not declaring it. The, the Chinese Thousand Talents program was basically hired Charles Lieber, Jewish, to uh, basically transfer nanotechnology you know, innovations to the Chinese. Now, uh, nanotech is used in the vaccine. And there's a whole story there, you know, uh, he hired Mark Mukasey, the most prominent trial lawyer in the nation for his case. And of course, Mukasey is Jewish. And I consider this a, 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 a typical and classic example of uh, Jewish treason against their host nation. Uh, I don't know, you, I think you had uh, some news about uh, uh, Charles Lieber's uh, sentencing. It ended up being two days in prison with uh, time served and you know it's just an outrage yeah i mean it, it was fascinating reading about that in terms of all the different programs he was involved in and how deeply embedded he was uh, with the chinese as well and the fact that he as you said he, he he seemed to just turn his back completely on was it harvard he was it was part of um yes. and, and and america overall and going to working for them he set up two different 
companies, I think on his spare time, that did a bunch of interesting things regarding nanotech and you know biosignatures and you know these new types of uh, what is it tattoo type vaccines that they're now developing and things like that he he wor he actually oh. worked on some of those things right did oh, he not that's, yeah yeah uh, vista vista therapeutics and nanosys were his two private companies he was raking it in the uh u.s government uh, including darpa defense advanced research project agency and uh let's see uh naval and air force research funded uh you know the Lieber research group at harvard for 15 million at the same time he was taking money from the chinese for some of the same research he was double dipping basically here's some of the charges let me play this real quick here this could be good for people to just get a, a an overview of of who he was and what the charges were we're here today to announce three separate cases highlighting the ongoing threat posed by Chinese economic espionage and research theft in the United States. Federal investigators at the Lexington home of 60-year-old Dr. Charles Lieber today, moments after his arrest at his Harvard office. The complaint alleges that Dr. Lieber signed a contract with the Chinese University in Wuhan and was paid up to $50,000 per month, plus up to $158,000 in living expenses. The chair of Harvard's chemistry department, he also allegedly received more than one and a half million dollars to set up a research lab in China, all while working at Harvard and receiving multiple research grants from the U.S. Department of Defense and National Institutes of Health. Also charged today, two Chinese nationals, 29-year-old Yang King Yi, who worked as a scientific researcher at Boston University. Who failed to mention on her visa application. Yeah, they spin this towards China, of course. The People's right. Liberation Army. 30-year-old yeah. Zhao Zong Zhang worked on cancer research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. For trying to smuggle vials of biological material out of the United States to China yeah. and lying about it to federal investigators. Now, Lieber is due back in court Thursday. He's currently... Okay, let me play the, the update here then, because yes, as you said, the charges were dropped. Listen, I... Uh, he was, he was, he's out, out of prison, at least. Listen to this. Here. Former Harvard professor who had ties to a Chinese-run recruitment program will not have to serve any more time in prison. Uh -huh. A federal judge sentenced Charles Lieber to time served. He spent just two days behind bars. But Lieber will be on house arrest for six months and has to pay about $83,000 in fines oh, and no. restitution. <laughs> oh, no. How will he recover? Former chair of Harvard's mm -hmm. Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology never paid taxes on his salary from the Wuhan University of Technology, which was $50,000 a month. Yeah, and then $15 million or what was it else? I mean, he's, he's, he got off yeah. easy, this guy. Well, um, the, sen the, the sentence for traitors is hanging. Right. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's accused of, you know, tax evasion. Yeah, and not the actual work, right, that it was done and set, what, intellectual property, right? He gave things yes. to China. Is this the Wuhan link? Because obviously we yes. do have to talk about that. Tell us about this. The Wuhan University of Technology was uh, basically the one, you know, the uh, uh, Lieber set up research laboratories there. He supplied them with, uh, uh, you know, scientific papers. He uh, uh, groomed and trained uh, Chinese researchers to, uh, you know, work at the WUT and so on. So his sentencing is Jewish privilege. You know, right. The Jewish, the Jewish power elite got him off. He's doing their work. And it's 
dreadfully damaging to the United States. So I'm not sure of our time um, here, Henrik. Uh, can you give us a? Yeah. Yeah. What do you? Uh, let's just keep keep moving. Are you uh, are you pressed for time overall today? No, I'm not at all. I okay. just thought we only had one hour for you know part one and. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. We can extend it over a little bit if we if we have to as well. But let's make sure we we go through and get out what you want to get out in the first part. So please, if you want to move ahead with some of the other names, we can just dive right into that. That's it. I'll just yep. move. You know, summarizing these Jewish names and chapters five and six. Yeah, go ahead. Mark, Mark Sussman, he became the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on February 1st, 2020. 2020, remember, was the year of the panic-demic. This is where we stir up the fear and spread the hysteria, and th which is all a, a sales strategy for the vaccine. He, was, uh, he had been working at the Gates Foundation for 13 years prior to this in his, uh, what can we say? He established the Gates Foundation offices in China. He was in charge of like spreading the Gates Foundation around the world. So that I feel that was um, positioning the Gates Foundation for the, you know, the COVID story. They, they had to have an office in China. Um, under Sussman, the, the Gates Foundation granted $100 million and then another $150 million for vaccine development and manufacture in 2020. You know, they needed new facilities to s generate billions of COVID vaccines. And the Gates Foundation granted a total of 250 million. And um, Sussman says, quote, we're about making sure every person on the planet has the opportunity to live a healthy and productive life. This is basically the foundation's mission statement. He said this on April 15th. Six days earlier, Children's Health Defense posted an essay about the Gates vaccine programs in India, paralyzing a half a million children. And then multiple millions of uh, childbearing age women sterilized in Kenya. So this is uh, the Gates Foundation's uh, you know, mission to uh, ensure everyone has a healthy and productive life. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's just, uh, uh, just an atrocious hypocrisy. Um, maybe they think those people are collateral damage and it's acceptable. Well, they're helping, right? We're, we're helping. <clears throat> Less yeah. carbon in the world. Saving, <laughs> saving the world. So uh, now, um, Sussman, the way I found out he was Jewish, it's not in the usual sources. He's, uh, he um, celebrates his aunt, Helen Sussman, who was basically a Communist Party member in South Africa during the... the uh, you know, when the, the white British and Dutch ran the nation, it was in much better shape for everyone. Um, Helen Gav Gavronsky was her name. She married a Sussman, both Jewish. So uh, there's Mark Sussman. He, he took over the Gates Foundation for that year to ensure the, uh, the panic was spreading over the deadly virus. Hmm. And then the uh, Next, our next uh, suspect is, or culprit, I should say, is Cass Sunstein. Many people have heard of Cass Sunstein. He was a Harvard professor. He was appointed to the World Health Organization's Technical Advisory Group for Behavioral Insights and Sciences for Health. He was basically, it was his job, he was the chairman of the TAG. His job was to um, basically cajole and manipulate and nudge and coerce and pressure all the peoples of the world to get the COVID vaccine. So when you see things like, um, 
you know, Mayor de Blasio munching on a hamburger and saying how good this tastes and, and associating that hypnotically with the vaccine. That that kind of strategy comes from Sunstein. I remember that clip. Uh, <laughs> Awful. Holy was crap. There was a bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, it, it was appalling. Anyone, like they're treating human beings like um, operant conditioning animals, you know. It was so insulting to the human race. Yeah, is there a is there a burger element to these fries? I remember the line very well. <laughs> so that's uh, that's Cass Sunstein, a uh, good old Cass Sunstein. But, uh, quickly, and I know we have other names to go through, so I don't want to dwell too long. But I know that Cass Sunstein also, of course, uh, famously was behind about disrupting the 9/11 Truth Movement by essentially releasing a book claiming that they had infiltrated a number of different groups and things like that. Uh, and then that basically led to the total disintegration uh, of the 9 uh, the infighting of 9-11 truth movement, because everyone suspected everyone else to be a plant by the government and kind of yeah. led by, by Cass Sunstein. So that's what I'll say about him. That's right. That's one of his uh, strategies. He wrote Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. There you go. And it called for the infiltration of extremist groups in a similar program as COINTELPRO, an actual, you know, in real life agents infiltrating these groups and oh God, i mean i just found him to be the most loathsome one of the most loathsome jews involved in the, the COVID phenomenon and having a very powerful role at the world health organization just a, a little uh i often find these tangents that are quite interesting the um sunstein it holds the robert walmsley chair at harvard university Robert Walmsley is the father of the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, Emma Walmsley. So you can see how these things are all tied together, the pharmaceutical companies, the uh, at university level, World Health Organization. And in many cases, they're tied together by Jews. So Sunstein was on the Defense Innovation Board. The Pentagon hired civilians to look into like blind spots that the military might not see. Uh, Sunstein was on the Defense Innovation Board with Walter Isaacson of the Aspen Institute, also Jewish. Aspen Institute was involved in uh, COVID. Uh, Marne Levine, the Chief Operating Officer of Instagram, also Jewish. Larry Summers, he was an assistant to Larry Summers, Secretary of the Treasury, all Jews. But uh, another key role was the Chief Medical Officer of Moderna was Tal Zaks. And he was infamous for saying, uh, in 2017, he gave a speech saying, we are now hacking the software of life hmm. with gene editing, which is essentially what the, the vaccine could be considered. And you had something else to say about Zach's. He was uh, celebrating the 94% effectiveness. Yeah, let's let's play that and then juxtapose to the kind of the collapse, really, of that narrative of the effectiveness, right? That was uh, CNN. Let's play that a little bit. Here's uh, <clears throat> he's being interviewed here by uh, I forget what her name is, Cohen, I think, on CNN here. Uh, let's play a little bit of this. 94% effective. Now we have a second vaccine providing so much hope. Tell us what you've learned. 
John, indeed, these numbers are stunning. Pfizer's vaccine showing very similar results. Let's get right to the details. As you said, let's break it down. What this Moderna data shows is that they gave 15,000 people a placebo. That's a shot of saline that does nothing. 90 of those people became sick with COVID over the period of several months. They also gave the same number of people the actual vaccine. Only five of those people became sick with COVID. That is where you get that stunning 94.5% effectiveness. Now, not only that, but the vaccine protected against severe illness. Those five people who took the vaccine and got sick, none of them became severely ill. But of the folks who got the placebo and got sick, 11 of them became severely ill. Also, good news on the safety end of things. A small number of people had things like um, headaches or muscle aches after receiving their two doses of the vaccine. And it is a two-dose vaccine. (laughs) But there was nothing severe, nothing terrible happened. Now, this news, this is news (laughs) to us. And yesterday, it was news to Moderna. An independent panel called the Data and Safety Monitoring Board analyzed these numbers, and they told Moderna about these results yesterday afternoon. Let's take a listen to the chief medical officer at Moderna, Dr. Tal Zaks. Tell me, how did it feel to hear that number, 94.5%? Elizabeth, it's one of the greatest moments of my life and my career. It is uh, absolutely amazing to me to be able to uh, develop this vaccine and see the ability to prevent symptomatic disease with such high efficacy. Now, neither Pfizer nor Moderna has applied to the FDA. I think that's enough of that. So he's very happy about that. Now, just to put this in perspective a little bit, check out how quickly that narrative collapsed right over the the months as it, I mean, let's not even get into the studies and how much fraud and phoniness there was and the fact that, you know, now this was Moderna, but it was very similar between the two big companies developing the vaccine, especially the mRNA uh, style vaccine, right? Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, But Pfizer famously tried to uh, hide some of the the information that came out from the studies for like 75 years. And we're lucky enough to get one of the judges saying, no, you got to release it now kind of thing. But check out, this. so this is Fauci kind of presenting this, but you have people like Tal Zaks kind of behind how this narrative failed of the effectiveness of the vaccine. So here's a little super cut here. Check this out. So now we have two vaccines that are really quite effective. The mRNA vaccine, highly effective, extraordinarily efficacious, 94 to 95 percent for mild to moderate disease and virtually 100 percent efficacious because the real world effectiveness is even more impressive than the results of the clinical trial. Look at that. Yeah, what's going on? Oh no. (laughs) 74. Oh no. (laughs) Whoever does this thing, this is 
Yeah, definitely. Excellent. You know, counter propaganda. Yeah. Stupid. <laughs> yeah, that went you know, um, quick. Yeah. <clears throat> Tell Zach was so excited. They they announced the results of their clinical trial on the on the business wire to investors. It yes, wasn't even a like, exactly. Yeah. And then they had their disclaimer. You know, this is preliminary results, and don't don't you know spend your money based on this. But but people, well, those in the know did. A lot of people made money on this as it was going up and up and up, and some of them got out just in time, of course, before the collapse came from Moderna and some of these other companies. Yeah, insider knowledge. <sighs> we, I mean, oh, you can read in that chapter how <clears throat> the actual the the comparison between relative effectiveness and absolute effectiveness. Right. If you factor in the fifteen thousand, and then five got sick, and the fifteen thousand and what ninety got sick. You 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 compare those numbers. And the effectiveness absolute is like 0.1%. Mm -hmm. I, I forget the math. It's in that chapter. Yeah. Absolutely crazy. But yeah, so that's uh, that's Tal Zaks. Do you want to mention anything else about him or should we move on? No, I want to mention Klaus Schwab. Yes. And I've, I've started off, you know, speculating that Klaus Schwab might be a crypto Jew. Then uh, later in the in the book, and it, this was in, in my series of essays to Occidental Observer, I became convinced that uh, there was evidence that Schwab's mother was Jewish, and then I uh, new evidence emerged that that was a different Emma Schwab that emigrated to the United States in 1938, and so I'm now basically undecided. But there isn't the slightest doubt that Klaus Schwab's mentors and his handlers were very powerful Jews, Henry Kissinger and Herman Kahn. Schwab also said that his a great influence on him was an author of a book, um, and his name was Servan Schreiber, also Jewish. So I, whether Schwab's Jewish or not, he is certainly under the influence. He is an agent of the Jewish power elite. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been there's been questions about this back and forth kind of thing, <clears throat> and I, I've always felt, regardless, you know, that Schwab is kind of a he's a, he's a front man, right? He's kind of a, almost a cartoonish with his German accent, like a, a. It's very easy for like the kind of the conservatives, <laughs> the, the GOP types, you know, the conservative ink, I guess we can call them, to kind of like latch on to that and say, see, this is like COVID, just like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said in that clip, right? Or, or. Um, uh, that this is like this is like Nazi Germany again, and it's like nothing like that. It's nothing to do with that. But a Klaus Schwab kind of a little, you know what I mean? Kind of helps to kind of uh, underline that narrative a little bit. This is uh, German National Socialist fascism here with uh, Klaus Schwab at the front. 
Well, I mean, it does appear, uh, according to the good work of Johnny Vidmore at uh, Unlimited Hangout, he wrote two essays on Schwab and his origins, um, Schwab Family Values and Klaus Schwab, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And I, I evaluate both of those essays on my Substack page and identify all the various Jews that uh, Vedmore also identifies, but he doesn't, he doesn't reveal them as Jews. Although, to be fair, he does indicate that Kissinger and Kahn, who originally discovered Schwab and, and you know, mentored him, were Jews. But, uh, I mean, it, it, um, Schwab's father was Eugene, and he did work for Escher Weiss, a, a German industrial company, which was near the Swiss border. And uh, at one point, it was designated a national socialist model company. Escher Weiss was producing important uh, instrumentation for the, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, during the war. And so, but to, but to then like associate Klaus Schwab with Nazis, <laughs> when there's so much greater Jewish influence over his life, you know, it's just more of that obscuring the Jewish issue. Right, exactly. Um, now, of course, there's the whole issue with the World Economic Forum. I'm not sure if that's something you want to wait or if you want to get into that now. What do you think? We will. This one made it to Occidental Observer under a different title. I, I call it simply Jews of the World Economic Forum. Uh, the Board of Trustees is, at the time, was 31 exceptional individuals who act as guardians of its mission and values and oversee the forum's work in promoting true global citizenship. So remember that, the work of the forum is promoting global citizenship. Well, how many are Jews? Leo Raphael Rafe, the president of MIT. Uh, Epstein made a large donation to the MIT Media Lab, to which Rafe said that was deeply disturbing. David M. Rubenstein, people have heard of him. He's the chairman of the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, the founder of the Carlyle Group, a huge investment firm, particularly invested in uh, the war industry. Then you have Mark Benioff, the founder of Salesforce, a huge international company whose uh, agenda seems to be to make all of software rented, not owned. He also helped found Oracle, which is involved in mass surveillance, including pharmacovigilance, you know, tracking the vaccine outcomes for two years. Larry Fink, everyone knows Larry Fink from BlackRock. He's on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. Orit Gadish, she's the, uh, they call her the chairman of Bain Capital, giant international uh, investment company and business consultancy. Her father was a general in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. And then I have a potential crypto Jew, Peter Brabeck Letmothy. CEO of Nestle, whose agenda seems to be control of all the world's it, potable water. It ought water. to be said that you and I. And uh, from there, note. there's people always say, "Where were you?" Crypto Jew, um, excuse me. Uh, you and I were having breakfast. A philo semite in New York on September 11. Non-Jews that basically uh, do the work of the Jewish power elite. Peter Moore from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Mark Carney is a philo semite at the Bank of International Settlements, Bank of England, Goldman Sachs. Christia Freeland, interesting case. She was, uh, her father worked for a national socialist newspaper in Ukraine during the Second World War. And she was I accused of being, 
And that's why Nazi. that came up during the Can the Canadian, you know, trucker convoy and all that stuff. Oh, it's a Nazi trying to stop. <laughs> well, she's uh, none of the none of the kind. Not 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 today. That didn't uh, that didn't uh, inherit. It didn't pass <laughs> down. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. She 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 survived that accusation. <laughs> She wrote the book Plutocrats, The Rise of the New Global Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. <laughs> this is some of that grotesque hypocrisy. I call it hutzpocrisy. <laughs> you know, hutzpah hypocrisy. That's, uh, she is one of the plutocrats. Yes. And ensuring the fall of everyone else. Not to go too much into, she's a non-Jew on the, the board, but... And I, I checked recently. So my chronicle is... is strictly 2020 and 2021 but i checked recently and the board of trustees at the world economic forum is down to 28 people there's been some turnover but four of those jews are still there four of the main mm -hmm. you know you know rubenstein and uh fink and uh uh rafe and uh benioff and they've added a, a partial jew um Lagarde, Christine Lagarde, she's the... Oh, is she Jewish? I was... Because the way they pushed her, right, she's the head of the uh, European uh, Central Bank. One quarter, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I, I saw her, see her everywhere, and, you know, the CBDC push and all this kind of th thing, and I'm just like... Anyway, I, I, I wondered, you know, kind of thing, but okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's, I guess, to, maybe it's also to the extent of... You know whether you, you okay a quarter you know you can prove it genetically whatever but but at that point it's down to what they identify with and the fact that they're like oh I I I am Jewish and therefore I kind of I yeah. you know I, I go along with this or, or or I you know on some level kind of support this even if it's subconscious in some cases you know what I mean of just like right. doing things that are just like you know uh, you know expedient uh, you know for for their ethnic interests you know what I mean yes there are studies that try to determine how much Jewish blood, how much Jewish in inheritance, you know, confers certain traits. As some people say one drop, you know, <laughs> but uh, certainly a quarter. The, the, the Nuremberg laws, I think they cut off the percentages below 25%. Um, so Lagarde said in a speech accepting a, an award from some Jewish organization that she had a Jewish grandparent, so. Oh, okay, interesting. I am really delighted to be able to address you on the occasion of the official reopening of the Jewish Museum Frankfurt. It will enhance the cultural life of this city by showcasing the richness of the Jewish presence and culture. As president of the European Central Bank, I'm particularly proud that our institution has a special relationship with the Jewish Museum Frankfurt. Part of the ECB's headquarters hosts a Jewish memorial. It marks the space of horrible suffering of the Jewish citizens of Frankfurt and stands for our commitment to keeping the memory alive. It also reminds us of our responsibility to work hard to make sure that such horrifying times never come back again. And as guardian of our common currency, we play our part in this by helping to build an ever closer union of peoples of Europe, all of them. It also wants to present today's Jewish life, art and culture with its strong emphasis on openness and invitation for people to come in and engage. In times of worrying populism, nationalism, 
and anti-Semitism. This is more important than ever. I myself look very much forward to visiting the museum. Mazel tov. And of course, again, just a quick note about that, but Larry Fink have an incredible uh, amount of power and, and, and influence, of course, as, as the head of BlackRock. And I mean, he's basically setting the tone for the ESG uh, agenda, the Environment Social Governance, which is his kind of, you know, corporate social credit score, essentially. And with the aid of the World Economic Forum and them essentially working in cahoots, they've managed to, at least in my opinion, kind of reshuffle the entire corporate world to turn it uh, into something that used to be about just the bottom line and making as much money as possible to something which now is about pushing you know social engineering and and uh, uh, liberal agendas essentially yes exactly uh well stakeholder capitalism progressive yes. neo-communist agendas like you know global homo and blm transsexualism what it has nothing to do with in fact it's antithetical to business profits right yeah uh, every year larry fink issues his letter letter to ceos i wrote about this in the chapter and blackrock holds enough stock in every important corporation that if they sell it off it triggers a, a, a well, larger sell-off and that's how they they control these corporations so his letters aren't suggestions to the CEOs on what they're going to do, what they're going to focus on in the next year. Their orders, their marching orders. That's the power of BlackRock, and he's on the board of the World Economic Forum. Yeah, here he is, uh, Larry Fink, as it were. Should we uh, should we go through a couple of more names here before we take a little break? My, how about Michael Dolston? Tell us about him. It, it was an important, and he was also kind of uh, pushed forward in this way that he's a, he's one of the great uh, uh, saviors. You know, there were a couple of articles. I forget. I think this was from Times of Israel or something like that. Jewish immigrant and top Pfizer scientist hails role of U.S. immigrants in the vaccine. Michael Dolston, the head of this uh, scientist, head scientist, that should be. Uh, at Pfizer, eager to point out role of new arrivals to America in crucial scientific breakthroughs. So he's kind of getting involved into the politics of this as well, you could say. Oh, always. Michael Dolson is the Pfizer chief science officer. He worked at the Wiseman Institute of Science in Israel. And uh, he's kind of the equivalent of Tal Zaks for Moderna, Dolston for Pfizer. Uh, he, he was famously or infamously infamously said he hopes the United States stays a melting pot, certainly uh, important for Jewish interests in the U.S. He was on the board of the biggest like drug promotion organizations in the world, PHRMA and uh, Accelerated Medicines Partnership. So Michael Dolson was a, a, played a key role in the, in the COVID panic and then the, in the COVID vaccine rollout. So that's, uh, he's one of the people in chapter six, more covert COVID Jews. Albert Borla, most people know about Borla, the CEO of, of Pfizer. He was, he was portrayed as a Greek veterinarian. He studied the biotechnology of reproduction in animals. And so he's not a human scientist. Unless, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on with this, but it's just, well, I just want to play a little bit of this. <clears throat> anyway, oh, go, go on. The, the neck thing. Yeah. <laughs> This frog, like, well, I, you know, I want to say that he made a lot of money, though. I mean, we need to point that out, make that clear. That, like, man, they made so much money on this. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's possible that Borla has a Talmudic view of non-Jews as animals, and so that his training as a veterinarian is actually appropriate for him him to be the CEO of the Pfizer pharmaceutical company, whose 
products are mainly for humans. Yeah, uh, and he got, by the way, let me mention this about Borla. He was up on stage with Jonathan Greenblatt, which we checked in on earlier, of course. Uh, and the ADL said a statement about him that said, We're honored to welcome Dr. Albert Borla. Next at Never Is Now, Dr. Borla, CEO of Pfizer, will be receiving the much-deserved 2022 ADL Courage Against Hate Award for his work in the public health sector and uh, beyond. So a lot of, a lot of prizes award awarded here as well. And, of course, there's something particularly kind of sinister about this now when we're slowly but surely and of course in some cases not as slowly it's been in instant consequences for many of those that took the vaccine but i think there's also a long-term uh consequence with the vaccine rollout that we've yet even to see the full consequences of astounding and yet typical he's gonna give his uh, genesis prize money to a holocaust museum yeah but so you know just blatantly declaring his jewish affiliation his jewish advocacy as the as the ceo of pfizer that's just revolting i mean uh, 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 borla's going to need a lot of courage because there's a great deal of hatred for borla in the countervax world and, and rightly so yeah exactly you've been uh, very successful oh there was audio on that yeah no here uh here he is right he's sitting with uh klaus schwab up on the stage and they were talking about uh, basically, crazy conspiracy theories and things that they and again, and again straw manning, you know, claiming that the, the people had misrepresented, uh, you know, what they uh, you know what they said, and then they're misrepre misrepresenting everyone else on what they uh, said and their their tr genuine true concerns, you know, about the vaccine and the rollout and stuff like that. But uh, no, Albert Borla is a big uh, cog, I feel, in this machine, you know. Oh, huge! Yeah, couldn't have done it without him. That's Just right. A, and speaking of conspiracy theories and Schwab. Klaus Schwab, the world-traveling ch executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, happened to be in uh, New York City on the events of 9-11. That's right. I was going to mention was, that, but I forgot. Yep, that's right. He was at Arthur Schneier's Park East Synagogue having breakfast. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. <laughs> he had a clear, yeah, what was the, uh, the quote, I think, was we had a clear view of the towers as they came down or so, it was something to yeah. that effect, I think he, he said. Yeah, it's all tied together. He's, these creeps are they run multiple operations over the generations but uh, the last name i'll mention in chapter six is dr drew wiseman drew the jew wiseman he claims he invented the technology that made the pfizer vaccine possible uh it was uh they needed to stabilize the modified messenger rna because you know the robert malone team came up with the messenger rna but it, it was unstable in the body. It would degrade. So uh, it took years. But Wiseman at the Perelman School of Medicine, uh, Pennsylvania University, they came up with the technology. So you ha here you have a Jew respo responsible for essential technology for the entire operation. Uh, Ronald Perelman being a particularly corrupt uh, and you know predatory Jewish hedge fund manager funding it was actually his parents that funded the Perelman School of Medicine at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Drew Wiseman won the Rosenstiel Award in 2020. Louis Rosenstiel was a child-raping blackmail ringleader and a, a associate of Roy Cohn, who did the same. And uh, they were like uh, Jewish organized crime bosses. Here, here's Wiseman getting an award from Rosenstiel Foundation. Hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just appalling. 
I don't know. That, there's so much to say, but I, I wrote a, a, an essay about uh, Wiseman's more recent work. He was attributed as the man who saved the world, and now he's uh, promoting you know other messenger RNA technology for everything under the sun. There's huge uh, profit potential in it. Yeah, they've they've pivoted uh, towards this direction where they're basically saying every medic, I mean, not every, but the majority of medications and the new R&D that's uh, happening on this front is basically are uh, all mRNA based. Uh, Pfizer, even they even redid their their entire logo to kind of emphasize like the genetic you know aspects to this by, by changing their logo to do to these helixes and stuff like that. Uh, so this is how they're pivoting. And the, the, the argument here is we'll basically correct if you have anything wrong in your code, right, like, like we're a computer program or something like that, we'll just go in and we'll snip that out or we'll update this piece of code. It's uh, t t terrifying to me, mm -hmm. but this is, uh, this is the direction they're going. And there are multiple studies showing that the collateral damage that does, the, you know, the down genome mangling that occurs with these attempts at gene editing, it, it's far from precise. And there's known and unknown, you know, collateral damage to the genome when you attempt to snip in some you know engineered code well maybe just before we close on this part of our interview i want to mention the something you said just reminded me you were the first person i ever saw reveal the 666 symbol in the world economic forum logo oh yeah mm -hmm. so i write about that in my chapter uh covid evil satanic references in the coronavirus scandemic in the book. There's a lot of other 666s and 33. There is, isn't it? They, they, do, they do like their symbolism. There's something that uh, for, for some reason, uh, you know, people speculate why they, why they do it like that. Or if it's on some level, uh, you know, not a coincidence, but there's a, is a bigger, you know, message. It, it needs to get out. You know what I mean? Like it, it, yeah. it sends a signal to us in some kind of way. But yeah. No, that's that. That's uh, interesting. I'll, I'll show that on screen here too uh, in post. But so uh, yes, we've gone over time a little bit, but that's uh, totally fine. Uh, not a problem. This is an in-depth um, conversation about what happened during the pandemic, who's involved, the different names and things like that. And of course, we're going to continue and pick this up in part two uh, together with Carl. But uh, tell us then where people can get a copy of your book. Uh, do, do some plugs here for us. Uh, covert, covert COVID culprits. Is uh, the Barnes Review the best place or where would you like to send people to buy, buy a copy yes. of the book? Yes, by all means. Uh, BarnesReview.org. You can uh, hover over the catalog of books, then select American history. You can also select politically incorrect history, and you will find it there. You, I much prefer the Barnes Review. I also write for their magazine. You can see one here in the background. That's my cover article. And uh, yes, that's the best way. You can. It's on Amazon. Not a lot of sales there, thankfully. Let's not feed the beast. Right. Let's uh, go through Barnes. Both of us uh, are better compensated, which. Uh, is is very welcome. I'm, you know, looking to make a living at uh, exposing the, the Jewish power. I think it's one of the most. It might. I, I'm saying it's the most essential enemy to understand in our fight for survival. It's the least talked about and one of the most censored aspects to this as well. And I and I always yes. just I always like to compare it to how they attack white people and how openly. 
uh, it's disgust of, of yes. supposed, you know, uh, wh white power out there and white supremacy and with all the CRT and the education and in every yes. aspect now it's weaved, baked into the system that like it's bad if you have too many white people and that somehow we throughout history have conspired to, to you know, subvert uh, everything and take control over everybody mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, uh, that's a Jewish narrative. And basically, counter-Semitism is legitimate. I also have a Substack page, carlhamers.substack.com. I call it Taboo Truth. I welcome paid subscribers, but everything there is free as of now, and mostly just want to raise awareness and bring attention to the most urgent of all issues, the Jewish issue. And I, I talk about, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about some solutions, resolutions to the Jewish issue. And then you can see my uh, writings at Occidental Observer under the author blog. Yes, that's right. So we'll have some of those links down below. But once again, then the Barnes Review, it's, it's not the actually in the website. It's just barnesreview.org. Uh, and if you uh, search books by category, as Carl said, you can find it right there. But we'll add a, a direct link down below as well. Covert COVID culprits. All right. Thank you, Carl. Uh, we'll take a, a quick break right here and we'll be right back with more in uh, part two. All right, interesting uh, information here from Carl Hemmers. Uh, see what you think. Uh, if you want to hear more, you can, of course, pick up a copy of the book. Uh, you can also join us in uh, part two of this conversation. We'll go even deeper into some of these issues uh, and continue to follow up and ask more uh, about Carl, about what he thinks about some of these things and his uh, work on this. We are going to talk about COVID kind of as a fake pandemic a little bit in part two. Uh, basically, it's a media narrative. Uh, but what about the vaccine as a bioweapon? Once they were introduced, you did see, I personally think at least, a lot more sick people. We have seen excess deaths as well, and I think this is attributable to uh, the vaccine rollout. We speak on censorship and control of the narrative, both from the point of view of media and government. Technology is another aspect that have been proposed as solutions to much of what we saw during the pandemic. A couple of examples, the digital health passports that went into kind of the digital IDs eventually. They've even wanted to introduce central bank digital currencies during this time, and they basically succeeded in that. That's being rolled out in many countries now uh, because we need to get away from cash because it was dirty and, and, and bad, essentially. There are tremendous dangers uh, with many of these uh, technological solutions that are being rolled out if uh, anybody opposes anything uh, for whatever reason you could be immediately frozen out of the system and and cut off essentially we also speak about the cdc rochelle walensky and the new head mandy cohen but also peter hotez one of the preeminent vaccine pushers and how he called anti-vaxxers basically terrorists that are killing people towards the end we hear about the uh, department of homeland security head mallorcas who's sparring with the thomas massey over covid malinformation uh, and again, the supposed connection here to, uh, you know, not following the narrative and being a terrorist. Carl Lenz talking about a Jungian approach as a potential resolution to the overall issue. Something different. I haven't heard uh, really that many people talk about that. So uh, anyway, interesting uh, from Carl Hamers here. Check it out. RedEyesMembers.com. Sign up over there if you want to check out the second part and get access to all our archives, full archives. Uh, at RedEyesMembers.com. You can also sign up at Odyssey.com forward slash at TV or Subscribestar.com slash RedEyes. Thank you so much for watching and listening, everybody. We appreciate all of you. Special thanks and shout out to our executive producers here today. T. Lothrop Stoddard, V. Miller, Resin Revolt, 
Good Luck Lap, Jake, Red Pill Rundown, Chalky Milk, French 47, Mark Smith, No One Jeeves, President Obunga, Mongoose, William Fox, Angry White Soccer Mom, The Second Wanderer, Operation Werewolf, The Ride Never Ends, Francis Parker Yaki, Jill Bob, we also have last place Simp, Joseph Hart, Purple Haze, and JP. Thank you guys, we can't do it without you. Also thanks to our producers, Mr. Walker, 696, Johansson, Leroy Dumont, Snork Pup, Eyes Open, Mr. Lemry, Yuri New, Obadiah Hexwell, Single Action Army, and George Porge. Thank you guys, we appreciate all of you. If you want to shout out at the end of the show and step up to the plate and help Red Eyes further, definitely consider getting a producer or executive producer membership tier with us. We appreciate all of you. You can also donate if you want, redeyes.tv forward slash donate. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back with more soon, more interviews in the pipeline. Flashback Friday, no-go zone, shorter videos, and of course, Western Warrior 4 members. We'll see you guys in uh, part two right after a short break. <laughs>